0: Right. Well, we are still in the Easter season. Oh, no! You're fantastic. No, you're great. Thank you. So let me just say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, this morning I do want to close out our our well-read teaching series on the Bible by briefly addressing some of the questions you've been sending in over the last few weeks. Now, as I mentioned last week, the questions are pretty wide-ranging. And so I can't possibly get to most of them even, and I won't be able to do it in a whole lot of detail. But my hope is that in addressing the questions I am able to get to this morning, that I'll be able to do that in a way to give you some general insights and some general principles that can be helpful on a broader scale. And hopefully we can get to maybe all of them at our Let's Talk About It sessions. So having said all that, would you stand with me once again, please, that you're able, in honor of the Word of God. And just to get us focused and moving, we're going to read together Acts chapter, six, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Those of you with me in the Center for New Life, I'll read the plain text. If you'll join me in reading the highlighted portions. Those of you worshiping with us virtually, just read the text as it pops up there on the screen. That way we'll walk through together. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, then, this is what the Bible says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, I open up with this passage this morning because it highlights really two important points related to the Bible in general. First, that for the Bible to do you any good whatsoever, you actually have to read it. Now, that should go without saying, but the truth is there are Christians who spend more time arguing about the Bible than actually reading it. The encounter here in Acts chapter 8 ends with this Ethiopian eunuch believing the good news of the gospel and asking Philip to baptize him as a follower of Jesus. But it begins, for this Ethiopian eunuch, with his willingness to sit down and read the Scripture. The second interesting thing I find in this encounter is that he needed someone to help him understand what he was reading. No doubt it was the Holy Spirit himself who warmed his heart and opened his eyes and convinced him of the truth of the gospel. But the Spirit chose on this occasion to do a good deal of his work using Philip in the process. In other words, having questions about the Bible is normal, and from time to time we can all benefit from having someone walk us through a text. So with that in mind, I want to jump right into some of the questions you've been sending in over the last few weeks. The answers to at least two of those questions actually flow really well out of the things I shared last week, so I want to start with those. Someone wrote in and asked, based on Romans 8, 37-39, nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Yet Matthew 12, 31 says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Is that contradictory? This is a great question for us to consider because it highlights a common error, a common mistake that often leads people to see contradictions in the Bible where none exist. And frankly, it is exactly the same uh, error in context and in category that we looked at last week, with regard to the message paraphrase of Acts eight thirty five. The context of the whole last chapter of Acts, chapter eight, as I mentioned last week, is set out for you in Acts eight, uh, Acts uh, Romans eight, Romans eight eighteen, where Paul writes. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And So the rest of the chapter is about how to function in relation to the sufferings of this life, how to carry on with the regard to the trials and the hardships that often come upon you from the outside totally beyond your control. Again, as I noted last week, Paul writes in verse 35 of Romans 8 about affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. In verse 36, he writes about being like sheep led to slaughter. In verses 38 and 39, he points out these powerful outside forces that impact us like life and death, angels and demons, powers, and for that matter, anything else in all creation powerful things, hard things that can come upon you from the outside. And in other words, Romans chapter 8, at least this portion of Romans chapter 8, has nothing to do whatsoever with the sins you commit. As a result, there is no contradiction between this passage and Jesus' words about the unpardonable sin because this Romans passage is not about sin at all. The point of these verses in Romans chapter 8 is to assure you that nothing that can happen to you, nothing anyone can do to you, can separate you from God's love and God's care, which is then meant to color how you respond when bad things happen to you or when people do things you don't like. The key is not to read into the text things that don't belong in the text. In this case... Not to read into a text about hardship, ideas about God's reaction to sin. Another question we received directly relates to what I shared last week about Bible translations. Somebody wrote in, Using the King James Version, Ezekiel 28.13 has been cited as the scripture that confirms Lucifer was in charge of music in heaven. But the original Hebrew makes no such musical reference. Is it possible the King James translation is wrong? Now, I wanted to deal with this particular question for a couple of different reasons, one of them being the issue of Bible translation. Last week, I explained that when Christians speak of the Bible being God-breathed, the Scripture being God-breathed and therefore being perfect, we are referring to the original text which the Holy Spirit moved the writers to write the original words put down by Moses or Daniel or Peter or Paul. We do not contend that every single word in every single edition ever copied or translated or printed since then is inspired in exactly the same way as the words written by the original prophets and apostles. Now, in the New International Version, Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. The specific question here relates to the fact that what NIV translates as your settings and mountings, the King James translates as thy tabrets and thy pipes. Now, let me go ahead and say quickly, I encourage you not to get too uptight, or too angry at least, or too judgmental is probably the best word, when you encounter a translation that may be a little off, or that may be just completely errant, because the truth is, Bible translation is difficult, and particularly when you get to some really, really old Old Testament words. But having said that, the best modern translations do not treat these words as references to musical instruments, but rather as ways the gems mentioned in this passage are affixed to the clothing of the person in question. In other words, and that's why the New International Version renders it settings and mountings. The ESV renders it settings and engravings. The New American Standard renders it settings and sockets, which obviously makes a lot more sense in the context of the verse. Now, back in the day, you may have heard teachings that this verse refers to Satan as a uniquely musical being. Some of those teachings came around because the King James translates those words as tabrets, that means tambourines, basically, and pipes, flutes, possibly, or, or, or maybe pipes in an organ. And because it says uh, all those things were, where was it? There we go, all those things were actually prepared in this particular figure which some people have read to mean uh, that they were literally built into this person's being. Some people went so far as to teach that this means Satan was the worship leader or the uh, music minister in heaven before he fell. Unfortunately, those ideas are, in fact, based on a substandard translation of the Hebrew. And the truth is, this passage appears to have nothing really at all to do with music. So if you grew up with the teaching that Satan was once God's worship leader, you probably want to let that go. The other reason I wanted to deal with this question this morning, however, involves the tricky issue of interpreting Old Testament prophecy in general. Because the clear context of this entire section of Ezekiel is the pronouncement of judgment upon a particular man. Specifically, the king of Tyre, a powerful Phoenician city on the Mediterranean coast. In other words, this prophecy represents first and foremost God's judgment on that specific human king. And quite possibly, nothing more. Now, some have suggested that it doubles as a prophecy about the origins of Satan, primarily because it says of this person, you were in Eden The Garden of God. And obviously, the human king of Tyre was not with Adam in the Garden of Eden. So, some folks have concluded that this passage, this prophecy against the arrogance of the king of Tyre, also doubles as a prophecy against the arrogance of Satan that caused him to get kicked out of heaven. But I remind you that scripture must be read in the context of its literary genre. And the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy written in prophetic language, which is to say written in language packed with symbolism. So again, first and foremost, when Isaiah speaks of this king being in Eden, to read those words literally means to read them as prophetic symbolism. Very possibly simply comparing the blessed and pristine status of the king of Tyre, which ultimately led to his pride and his fall, with the blessed and pristine status of Adam in paradise, Adam being the quintessential prototype of everyone who experiences a fall. In other words, it's entirely possible that this passage not only says nothing about Satan and music, but actually may say nothing about Satan at all. Now, I've got a lot more to say about the subject of interpreting Old Testament prophecy and about possible allusions in the Old Testament to Satan, including the question of whether or not Lucifer is even actually a proper name for the devil. But I don't want to make this entire message this morning about that. So let me just say, if you have more questions along these lines or would like to talk about these things more, please make plans now to join us one week from tonight for our Let's Talk About It gathering at 7 o'clock here at church. While we're on the subject of interpretive problems related to translations, though, let me give you one more example from another question. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Many people have read this verse and begun to ask the question, how could the death of God's people be a precious thing to him? Typically, they work through it and end up connecting this verse to heaven and the beauty of heaven, that it's precious to God. When his saints die, because at that point they enter the glories of heaven. Or that it's precious to God when his saints die, because at that point they come to be with him in heaven. And while those notions can be comforting, they misapprehend the nature of death and of the eternal life promised in the gospel. Once again, to, interp- to interpret a verse of Scripture Well, one must interpret it in context. And the clear context, the obvious context of Psalm 116 is not the preciousness of death, but rather the preciousness of being saved from death. In verse 3, the psalmist writes, The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. So verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. I'm about to die. We find the response in verse 6, When I was in great need, he saved me. And in verses 8 and 9, For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord, catch this, in the land of the living. In other words, the psalmist begged God not to die, and God in his mercy responded and actually kept him from dying. And the rest of the psalm is an expression of his gratitude, for that deliverance. Listen, the Bible is clear. Death is an enemy. According to the Apostle Paul, it's the last enemy that we will be destroyed when Jesus returns and we receive immortal resurrection bodies. And according to Revelation 20, when death itself is cast into the lake of fire forever. The point is, we were not created for death. Death is a usurper that came into power in this world because of sin, so it always comes as something foreign. Yes, when a follower of God dies in Christ, he goes on to be with him in heaven in some disembodied form, but that's not the sort of life we were created for, and it's not the promise of the gospel. No doubt that has a certain beauty, but we were created for life in a body, which means the saints in heaven right now are waiting just like you and I are waiting for the fullness of the salvation that's still to come. So, if death is an enemy of the people of God, and this psalm is a celebration of life in this world, of God's deliverance of the psalmist from death, how come right in the middle of the psalm do we find precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? The answer comes down to the word translated as precious. The word in Hebrew is yakar. It means precious in the sense of rare, costly, weighty, or expensive. It refers to things that are highly valued, things that are expensive. In other words, costly, weighty, of great consequence to God is the death of his saints. The death of God's people is not precious to God as something he loves or delights in. The death of his people is precious to God as something that's costly and weighty. In other words, the death of a saint always matters to God. It's never something he looks at and yawns. Rather, in his sight, it's costly. It's weighty. It's consequential. A precious thing never to be taken lightly. Finally, it was interesting to me that at least in the initial round of questions that came forward when we asked for your questions, about 20% of them related to matters of Reformed theology, questions about predestination or election or sovereignty or something like that. I've got to be honest with you, I get these questions all the time. These, I get more of these questions than any other questions from people when I'm just out talking. And I really want to address this matter in some detail, but to do that would take multiple entire messages. So once again, let me say, if you want to talk more about this, then I encourage you to plan to be here a week from tonight for our Let's Talk About It session next week. Before I push into this subject, let me say right off the bat that I have great respect, tremendous respect for many of my brothers and sisters who approach the Bible and Christianity from a fundamentally Reformed perspective. Some of my very best friends in the ministry come from that tradition. And by and large, I've found them to be wonderful people. People who love Jesus, love the Bible, and love theology. Additionally, let me just go ahead and say, in my opinion, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a brilliant, concise theological statement. Uh, It is remarkably internally consistent, but in my opinion, one of the reasons it's so internally consistent is because of some fundamental errors that it's based on. That's why I believe addressing this particular issue is a great way to address the larger issue of reading things into a text. In other words, of starting with a predetermined opinion or a predetermined conclusion and then reading the text in such a way that it validates your predetermined position. When it comes to Reformed theology, part of the difficulty comes in how they define certain key terms, like foreknowledge, election, and sovereignty. Now, to be sure, these concepts and these words are in the Bible. The problem is that when they're used in the Bible, they simply do not mean what Calvinists insist they mean. Perhaps the bedrock of Reformed theology is Romans chapters 9 through 11, but a careful reading of those chapters, I believe, does more to refute five-point Calvinism than to sustain it. First, let me remind you that Romans is a pastoral letter. It's a real letter from Paul to real first-century Christians dealing with issues that are truly consequential to them. And chapters 9 through 11 are not an academic discussion of the theory or the doctrine of predestination. Rather, they are dealing with the pressing question, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, what about the Jews? Are they saved because of their Jewishness? Or must they also believe in and follow Jesus? Now, if you hold to a hardcore election position from a reform perspective, the idea that God has immutably chosen long ago whom he will save and whom he will not, then frankly, the whole Jewish question is a real problem for you. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Apostle Paul virtually wails, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And he goes on to talk about it in some detail. In reform language, Paul is saying, I want so badly for them to be among the elect. But the truth is, the Israelites were the original elect, the original chosen in fact, God, uh, Paul got the term elect and chosen from his Jewish background. He simply imported it from his Hebrew history and his Pharisaic upbringing into the New Testament and uses it in that biblical way. So if election meant what well, Reformed theology insists that it means, immutable, unconditional election, an unchangeable predetermination by God that cannot be affected by anything you do, then why is Paul the primary New Testament user of the terms elect and predestination? Why is Paul fretting over the Jews and their current salvation status? The answer is because as used in the Bible, election doesn't mean what Reformed theology insists it means. It does mean that God always initiates, the salvation always, always begins with God, and with God, an extension by God of his grace to you. It does not, however, mean that's the end of the story. God initiates, but you must respond, either in faith or lack of faith, either in obedience or lack of obedience. And so you read in this passage in Romans chapter 11 that the Jews found themselves broken off because of unbelief. Not because they were predestined to it, but because they responded improperly to God's grace. They were the first to be offered this grace, the first to be called, the first to be chosen. They were the original elect. But when they refused to believe the gospel, when they rejected God's grace as it unfolded in Jesus, they found themselves broken off. And, fascinatingly, this state does not have to be permanent. It is not immutably predestined because Paul goes on to write, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The problem here is that often when people read the words in these passages, they define those words from a preset Calvinistic definition, not from the way the Bible is using them. In essence, Calvinists win the argument about their closed theological system by convincing people to read the Bible from within that closed system, defining the terms the way they have defined them. But listen, I can absolutely prove to you that cows fly if you agree with my definition that that's a cow. The way terms are defined matters. And, uh, and so it's important not to impose on a text A theological framework that prejudices the outcome of the reading. I can say a lot more, but I'm going to stop there for now, having barely scratched the surface of the questions you sent in. So let me say one more time: if you want to talk about this more, if 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 you want to get into this in some detail, if you want to argue and and um, and provide contrary opinions, if you want to get into a whole bunch of other questions that I didn't even get to this morning. Please plan uh, to be here uh, one week from tonight, uh, next Sunday night at 7 for our Let's Talk About It gathering. Uh, But for now, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as always, I thank you for the power and the clarity of your word, for the great gift of the Bible, the written authoritative word of God, It shows us who you are and who we are and shows us how we're supposed to be and do. Lord, help us cherish this gift, love it and eat it and read it and meditate on it and share it and and ask about it and work with it and let it read us. Let it change and transform us into the people you've called us and created us to be. Help us with that. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.